Hey everyone, and welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where it's our mission and purpose to help you find and follow Jesus. Our message from today is from our brand new sermon series from Pastor Paul titled, I Am. In this collection of sermons from the Gospel of John, we will be studying the I Ams of Jesus that reveal His character and sufficiency for the human soul. These declarations of Jesus unquestionably prove that He and the Father are one. And this can give us hope, purpose, and a strong desire to know Him more. So here's Pastor Paul, and we hope the message inspires and encourages you today. Okay, let's take our Bibles and let's go to John chapter 11 as we get into our service. And uh, I'm excited. We had a great 9 a.m., good crowd out. And that 9 a.m. crowd, I tell you what, they're an interesting folk. I'm joking. They're great. <laughs> I'm kidding. You're like, what's wrong? Nothing, nothing's wrong. They're great. They're a real blessing. And uh, uh, Hannah, you can turn your chair if you want so you can face me. There you go. That'd probably be easier, huh? Might hurt your neck going the other way. Good. But uh, I'm glad that you're all here. And uh, we're going to be in John chapter 11 today as we continue our study through the I am's of Jesus and his I am statements that reveal to us who he is and uh, how he can make a difference in uh, each, uh, each of our lives. Well, this morning we're going to be in a familiar story. If you've been in church, uh, maybe at any point, if you maybe went to Sunday school as a kid or uh, maybe you uh, later on in life started going to church a little bit, you've probably heard the story that we're going to cover this morning and in this story that may be familiar, we're going to look at it in maybe just a little bit of a different way, but I want us to ask the question this morning and really be confronted with the question. And here's what it is. And so I want you to get this uh, right away at the beginning of the message today. Here's the, here's the question. What do you do when God does not do what you think he should do? What do you do when God does not do what you think he should do? How do you respond when your plans uh, in your life, when you, uh, how do you respond when what you think God should be doing and what God actually does, when those two things don't line up in your life? How do you respond in those kind of moments? How do you respond to things like sorrow? How do you respond to difficulty? How do you respond to trials, things that come along and it seems like Jesus is not listening to you and he's not following the idea uh, that you should, you should have? See, what we often do in life is that we have an idea. So let's say we get into a difficult situation and you, you name the situation. We won't go around the room and ask you to name us your most difficult situation, but a trial, uh, a time of sorrow, something that you feel is impossible. Do you know what we often do instinctively is that we immediately develop a solution, don't we? And we've got a solution in our mind. And we're like, okay, this is what needs to happen. In fact, we go so far as to say, this is what God needs to do. Have you ever done that in your life? This is what God needs to do. And we think to ourselves, God, if you would just do this thing, then we are golden. And we, we have it all planned out for God. Have you ever done that before? Jeanette's laughing because she does this all the time. All right, and <laughs> I can say that because she's my wife and we talk about these things. She's like, oh man, God just needs to do this. And so we say, God, this is what's gonna happen. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, God doesn't seem to show up in the way that we think he should. I mean, we're prayed up, right? We're full of faith, we're ready to go, and yet God doesn't quite do what we think he should do. And so we wonder, where are you, God? So the question today is, what do you do when God does not do what you think he should do? How do we respond to that? And we see this in this story in John chapter 11, where we find two women in a very, very difficult and really tragic situation. 
And not only are they in a tragic situation, but what we discover is that these two women have a plan. They have a plan that they want God to do. They have something that Jesus should do, and they're sure if Jesus was just do what they want him to do, then things are going to work out fine and everything's going to be all right. But Jesus does not conform to their plan as he so often does. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to learn how Jesus reveals himself to us in this incredible way and how through this story we can learn to trust him when God doesn't do what we think he should do. And so we're going to begin today with point number one. Super simple in your notes, so you probably already wrote it down. Write down the plan. Number one today is the plan. So let's dig into this in John chapter 11, verse number one. It says, now a certain man was sick named Lazarus. Now already you're like, okay, now I know where we are. You said I would know the story. We're talking about Lazarus. So now you're connected into where we are. So Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And that's another great story about uh, Mary and the Lord, that interaction there. But here we have Lazarus and he's sick. Therefore, verse three, his sister sent unto him saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. So Mary and Martha, these are two sisters that Jesus knew well. They had a great family connection. They were people that he spent time with. And of course, their brother Lazarus was a part out of, out of all of this. They spent a lot of time together. So they send for Jesus. And really, one of the ways that we know their family was close was the fact that they actually got through to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Think of the hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people that would have been sending notes, sending messengers. I mean, we read other instances of that in scripture where people sent a servant or someone to come and find Jesus. And imagine all of the, of the people coming saying, Jesus, would you come and help me? Would you come and help me? But here we find this message actually getting through and connecting in so much so that it's related for us here in the book of John. And so here they come, they send this message to Jesus and they say, Jesus, your brother, the one you love, that's phileo, that's a brotherly love. They're like, the, uh, Jesus, the guy that you love like a brother, he is sick, he's not doing well. Would you please come? And so obviously when we see this and we read this, we, we, we are like, okay, he's sick. That's great. Jesus is close to this family. Well, I would think then that Jesus would, you know, hail the closest, you know, um, donkey uh, or I don't know. They're not just wandering around. But you know what I mean? He would get some way of transportation and let's get out of here and let's go make sure that Lazarus is going to go and be okay. The point I want us to see though is that these ladies, they had a plan. They knew that if Jesus would come, then everything was going to be okay. But Jesus does not respond how we would expect him to respond in verse number four. It says, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha. Now, that word love there is, um, is agape, which is a sacrificial love. So he says he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so the family. And when he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now, this is puzzling to me when you read it. I just said, I mean, they're a close family. Uh, they got through to Jesus Christ. They had a, a, a good relationship with him. But what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus says, you know what? He's not going to die. He's going to be all right. And then we see Jesus waiting two days before anything happens at all. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. That, that's confusing to me. Because if Jesus really loved them, he says, I agape them. I'm, I'll sacrifice for them. If he really loved them in that way, why didn't he not just take off and go and help them out? But the answer is seen there in verse number five, where he says, the sickness is not unto death, but look at this, but for the, say it with me, glory of God. All right, say it with me again. That was terrible. The glory of God. So there's something that is deeper at work here. I want you to notice that. There's something that is below the surface that God is doing. And here's what, is, what we see here is an overriding theme of this passage and maybe the overriding theme of the message today. And that is this, there is nothing in your life. There is nothing at all without purpose in your life. Whether it's sickness whether it's some sort of sorrow or trial, the, the loss of somebody that is close to you, 
Whatever it is in your life, there is nothing that is not known by God and there is nothing that is not redeemable by God. I want to maybe simplify it for you this way, and you can see this here on the screen. There is no situation in life where God cannot be glorified. And I want you to get this at the beginning of the message today, and I want you to lock this in your heart. There is no situation in your life that, where God cannot be glorified. It doesn't matter if it's a terrible work situation. It doesn't matter if it's a, a marriage that seems like it's on at the end or a marriage that is struggling. It doesn't matter if it's debt or dysfunctional family or the loss of a loved one. God can be glorified in every single situation. And so when we find ourselves surrounded by or faced with difficult situations, we've got to ask the question, how can God be glorified in this situation? How can God be, uh, be glorified or how can I glorify God in this? Now, this is not how we normally think about trials, is it? Our immediate thought on trials is what? How do I get out of this in the fastest way possible? <laughs> how do I make somebody else fix this? <laughs> or how do I, uh, what, I'll do whatever I have to do to get through this challenging situation, and I just want to be done with it. But here's the thing. As Christians that are growing and Christians that are maturing, okay, a mark of a mature believer is that we do not look at our trials as, as impossible or things we just want to get away from. As mature believers, we look at the challenges of life, and we face it, and we face it because we know we're not alone. We've covered that in, in some of the previous messages. We know we're not alone. We have, we have our Savior. We have Jesus who is with us. We have our church family to walk beside us, and so we're not alone, but we also walk through it knowing that God can be glorified in this, in this challenge. It is possible for God to be glorified in the difficult si uh, uh, parts of our life. Now, here's what happens, though. We recognize this, and as Christians, we say, oh, yeah, to God be the glory, great things he hath done, right? <laughs> but not in, not in my life, but maybe in other things. You know, and we'll say that and we'll, you know, uh, I remember that's always a song we would always sing when something big happened, you know, at church, you know, and we'd sing that song and, and everyone would be excited about it. But here's what happens though often. We know that and intellectually and, and cerebrally we'll say, yes, I recognize that to God be the glory and he will get glory in things. But what we often do in our personal lives is that we, we then, we say, well, okay, well, if God is going to get the glory, then where is God's love then in my situation? You ever felt that way? You're like, okay, I know this is a challenge, and I know that God is going to be glorified through this, but where is the love of God that I hear about? Because in our finite minds, we think, well, if God loves me, then he's going to fix every problem that I've got because he loves me so much. Uh, but, and, and so what happens is we think that the glory of God and the love of God kind of fight against each other, but that's not the case. It's like, it's like in a, in, in a parent-child relationship. Um, and, and some of you can relate to this, some of you can't. I think you'll understand the point, though. You know, as a parent, I love my children. But you know it's not the most loving thing for me to just fix everything for them? <laughs> it's not the most loving thing for me to just give them everything that they want and just lavish, you know, and anytime there's a possible, you know, like, Billy's, Billy called me stupid, so I go and I punch Billy, you know, because I'm going to protect my son, so an adult's going to go and assault a child, you know, because I'm going to make sure that everything is okay, you know? Uh, no, as parents, what do we do? We let our children go through certain things because it teaches them, it builds them up. It, uh, it helps them to understand. And sometimes the most loving thing I can do as a parent is allow my child to walk through something based off of their understanding that I am here for them. I'll walk with them through it, right? I'll be there for them. I'll be by their side. I'll hold their hand. I'll give them advice. I'll encourage them along the way. But sometimes that's the most loving thing I can do. But the problem is, as Christians, we, we're very selfish children, aren't we? <laughs> and so we say, well, God, if you love me, fix every problem in my life. And God is saying, no, no, I want to get glory 
through your situation. Now, we also view when anyone says, well, God's going to get the glory, we always think, okay, well, I'm going to hurt though, <laughs> right? God's going to get the glory and I'm going to suffer. And we equate glory of God with suffering in my life. And there is a little bit of truth to that. But what I want us to see in the passage here is that those two actually work very well together. They work very well together. You have to think about it. I mean, Mary and Martha here, I'm sure when they found out that Jesus waited two days, they might have been a little upset with him, don't you think? Jesus, wait, you knew that he was sick. You knew, I mean, you, you know all things. You know that, that he was struggling, but you waited two days. That might have felt very unloving to them. They might have felt very betrayed by that. But the thing that we must remember is that our feelings, the way we feel about situations, especially the way that we often feel about God, are not always necessarily the truth, are they? See, what happens is that we must let the truth shape our emotions, not our emotions shape the truth. Does that make sense? So often we, we, what we do is we allow our emotions to shape what we view as true. Have you ever, I mean, you've had this before in your life. You're, you're like, you're, you were convinced that that person hated you, <laughs> you know, and, and because of something that you sort of figured out. And then later on, you know, maybe it comes up. They're like, I, I, I love you. I think you're great. You know, and you have this idea, your emotion shaped what your view of the truth is. But in the Christian life, we always need to let the truth shape our emotions. And so while Mary and Martha were maybe upset and discouraged and disappointed, Jesus was still something, working something behind the scenes, okay? So that's a really big thought right at the very beginning that we need to get locked into our hearts. So they had a plan. Mary Martha had a plan. If Jesus would just come, then Lazarus is going to be all right, and everything's just going to be fine. But Jesus doesn't respond the way that he, they think he should. Now we come to verse number seven. So it's been two days. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His di- disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? I can imagine Peter speaking up. Typically, he spoke up first, maybe, and James, or maybe one of the other uh, disciples, as Jesus said, hey, let's go back uh, towards Judea. Let's go towards Jerusalem. They say, hey, don't you remember what happened last time we were there? They tried to stone us. Now, that means, like, try to kill you, okay? And and so, Jesus, they're trying to kill us. Why would we want to go back into that direction? Well, Jesus responds in a very metaphorical way in verse number nine. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbles because there is no light in him. Now, this response here is great. And Jesus just puts it very simply. He says, just as it's safe to walk when it's light outside, uh, just like you would want to go on a walk or a journey when it's daylight, he says, in the same way, you're safe when you walk with the light of the world. I don't know if they're like, oh, okay. So remember, he had just talked about being the light of the world, right? I don't know if anybody did that, but man, what a great response. Jesus is so nice, isn't he? You know, I would have been like, you know, why are you scared, bros? It's okay. Like, we're all right. But Jesus just gives them this kind rebuke, and he says, hey, listen, it's safer to be with Jesus. Isn't that a great thought today? It is so much safer to walk with Jesus, the light of the world, than to try to just figure things out in your life. Even if people are trying to kill you, it's better to be with him. We always say this, you know, it's, it's the best place to be is in the center of God's will. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And it's true. And Jesus illustrates it for us here. He says, hey, you should be with the light of the world. You won't stumble. It's going to be okay. Then we come to verse 11. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awaken, awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. That's a good thing. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. Wait a minute. But they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Verse 14. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. (laughs) And I am glad for your sakes that I was not here. Okay, wait a minute. He's dead and I'm glad. This is what he says, right? That's what Jesus said. 
to the intent, here's the reason, that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, that means twin, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, really interesting exchange that's going on here. So Jesus says, let's go. And see, he says, Lazarus, he's just sleeping. The guys are like, okay, well, that's a good thing. Man, if he's sick, he needs to sleep, right? That's what your, my mom used to always say. If you're sick, you got to stay at home. And I'm like, great, I'm going to watch TV. No, no, you go in your room and you sleep, you know, and you get better and you stay in there. And that's what she would say. And so uh, they're, they're like, this is a good thing. But Jesus, it says, was talking about his death. So Jesus says he sleeps. They think he's sleeping, but Jesus is talking about him dying. They don't figure it out. So Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. He can't say it any other plainer at all. He says he is dead. So here's a question for us. Why does Jesus call death sleep? That's a good question, right? Why do we see throughout scripture where God often speaks of somebody dying and he talks about that they fell asleep or they slept? Why, why is that? Well, here's, here's the idea that we need to understand. To the almighty creator God, Death, what we view death, the thing that we fear, the physical body, the death in the physical realm, to God, it is like sleeping. It's like sleeping. He knows, of course, that there is something outside of this life. God knows that this little breath, this vapor of life that we have here is just nothing. It's nothing compared to eternity. And so to God, when somebody dies, he's just like, ah, he's just asleep. It also is reference, of course, to the power of God and the fact that, that he can raise him to life. That's why he was glad that he had waited. Did you see that there? Not because Jesus is twisted, not because he secretly hated Lazarus, you know, and oh man, he finally got it. No, it's because death was powerless to God completely. Death is completely uh, nothing to God. He could wake up Lazarus easier than you can wake up your spouse on a, you know, on a Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning's a tough time to get him up. And God can wake him from, from physical death easier than you wake up your spouse on an early Sunday morning to get here for the 9 a.m. service, right? We'll just put that in there. And so all of this stuff is happening here. Jesus is talking. These guys are confused. They're trying to figure it out. And then we have good old Thomas, right? What is his nickname? Doubting. Someone said Didymus. Yes. No, that's what he was, the twin. He obviously had a twin somewhere. Um, and, uh, and Thomas, we know him as Doubting Thomas, but the thing about Doubting Thomas is that you could look at Thomas, especially in this situation, and say, you know what, maybe a better name for Thomas would be Logical Thomas, a little bit. And in this situation specifically, because he's the one who says, well, they tried to kill us before, so we might as well go. They're just going to kill us, you know. Now, it speaks of his faith. He had faith. All right, if this is what God wants, then we're just going to do it. That's a great thing. But he also says, like, ah, uh, you know, well, I've already seen what they tried to do before, and so that's probably what's going to happen again. Now, here's why I, want, I point this out. Because this is often, again, how we look at life. We look at life in this logical way, don't we? Thomas looked at the situation. He said, okay, they tried to kill us before. I bet you they're better prepared. They have more stones. They got more people. Uh, you know, they are ready. They probably got all the exits. You know, when they hear we're coming, they'll seal off the exits there in Jerusalem. And we're dead. I mean, this is what it is. And so, okay, God, if this is what you want, this is what it's going to be. This is probably what's going to happen. But he's not equating and he is removing the fact that God is an all-powerful God and that God might step in and do something different. And so good old logical Thomas here says, oh, well, we're just going to die. He assumes what's going to happen, and he is so much like we are. Because this is what we do again. We assume so much about God, don't we? Well, because of what happened in my past and because of, you know, this situation before, and therefore I guess I'm just going to, this is all going to happen again to me because of what happened. And so we assume and we, in our own wisdom, try to create the ideals of what is going to happen, but we leave out, and what we do is we forget the fact that God does have a plan, God does have power, and there could be a divine movement from God in our situations. And so Mary and Martha here and had this plan. 
and obviously all of these other details surrounding it, but their idea was that Jesus needs to come and heal Lazarus, but now Lazarus is dead. We know that. So what do you think is going to happen next? What is Jesus going to find when he arrives? Well, point number two, he arrives and he sees the pain. So there was a plan. Jesus has got to get here and he's going to make Lazarus all good. And we're all going to be good and everything's going to be fine. But he arrives and there is some pain. Look at verse 17. Then Jesus, when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now, Bethany was nigh as close unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs. That's about three kilometers. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. You know, by the time Jesus and his disciples arrived there in Bethany, it's a city that's very close to Jerusalem, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. Now, to us, we think, man, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. For four days, he's already been dead by the time Jesus walks in. I'm sure for those that were there hoping and expecting Jesus to arrive, he's four days late, essentially. (laughs) He's four days late to this thing. And for us, of course, we look at it and it seems like he missed the time or he didn't realize how long it would take him to walk there or whatever it may be. But the fact is, is that for Jesus, the timing was still perfect. I believe the timing here was for a purpose. After four days of somebody being in the grave, there's no doubt that he's dead, right? This was not like an allergic reaction. This was not a, uh, you know, he fell in, he hit his head, and he went to a coma, and he's just been in there for four days. No, they knew he was dead. In fact, we know later on, they said his body was beginning to decompose already. And so there's a a pretty good chance that this guy is dead as well. People are coming from all around the community. They're there. They're mourning with the family. And all of this is going on here, but Jesus has a plan. But it does not negate the fact that Mary and Martha had just lost their brother. It does not negate the fact that they are suffering, that they are mourning, that their plan had not worked out and that Lazarus was now dead and they were in pain and they were in sorrow of loss. I often wonder, how would I respond in that kind of a situation? How would I respond in that kind of situation? Well, we see next in verse 20 how Martha responded. It says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary sat still at the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. If if you had just been here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. But I know, verse 22 is key, that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it. Now, certainly Martha here was discouraged, don't you know? Don't you know she was disappointed? We get that in her response. Later on in verse 32, Mary says the same thing to him. But what I want to notice is that though Jesus came here and she says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. I don't know if she said it a little bit differently than that or harsher than that. or I don't know the tone of her voice when she said that. But the point is she came in and she said, listen, if you had been here, everything would have been uh, okay. Everything would have been fine. But then we come to verse number 22, which I love verse 22. I want you to see this. It says, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. This is a testimony right here. So she's suffering. Get this. She's disappointed. She said, Jesus, if you had been here, everything would have been fine. But then what she says, if we understand verse 22 correctly, she says to him, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but I don't know, I don't know what you can do now, she says, but I do know that you can do whatever you want. Did you see that? She says, I'm disappointed with you, Jesus. I wish that you had come in in time. I wish that you had been here. But yet, what do we see here? She says, I still know that you can do whatever you want. I still know that you are God. What is she doing? She is proclaiming Christ. She is proclaiming her faith in God, even when she is disappointed in what has happened in her life. Now, that's huge right there. 
That's one of those things I say, let's sit on that for a minute. Let's sit on that truth for a moment. Even in her disappointment, even when she is struggling, even when she feels like God uh, abandoned her, when God did not do what she thought he should do, she's lost her brother, she's suffering, but yet she still gives God the glory and says, listen, God, I, I don't know what you can do now, but I still trust in you. I still have faith in you. What a testimony to her and what a testimony to us, us that she was willing to proclaim her faith even in disappointment. Hey, I wonder, do you proclaim your faith in Christ even when your expectations of God are not met? Even when things aren't going how you think they should go, even when you find out that news or that information that you never thought you'd get, do you still proclaim your faith? Do you still point yourself and others to Christ? Maybe that's something you need to do right now. Maybe right now some of you are really, you're just disappointed in God. You're like Martha and you say, God, if you'd just done this, if you just figured this out, things would have been okay. And you're struggling right now. Let's learn from Martha's testimony. She says, you didn't do what I thought, but I know that you are still God. Look how Jesus responds in verse 23. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. <laughs> Martha said unto him, I, I know, I know, that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So here's what's going on. Jesus says he's going to rise again. Martha says, yeah, I know, Jesus. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, I'll see him again one day. You know, it's like when you go to a funeral or, you know, if a Christian dies, you know, and, and, you're at, and you just try to encourage him, say, hey, one day you're going to see your brother, your family member again. You're going to see them again. It's going to be great. And they say, yeah, yeah, I know. I know one day I'll see him again. That's really what she's saying. She knew that there would be a, a, renew, or a, a reconnection with her brother one day. She knew that the grave was not the end. But we got to remember, Jesus is talking about something far bigger, isn't he, right here? He is talking about something far greater, far remarkable there than anyone could ever imagine. And he does so in his fifth I am statement. Where we come to point number three this morning, we see the promise. We see the promise in verse number 25. And Jesus said unto her, remember, she said, I, I know I'm going to see him again. This is what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he says this, believeth thou this? He says, do you believe what I'm telling you? Now, this here is the fifth I am statement of Jesus, and it is a powerful statement to his power over the greatest fear that mankind holds. And I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say to this woman, he does not say, I can resurrect people. He doesn't say that. Don't worry, I can resurrect people. He doesn't say, I've got life. I've got something in a bag over here, and I can give him some life. She didn't say that. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Here's the great truth that he's sharing with her, is that our hope is not in an event. Our hope is in a person. See, as Christians today, our hope is not in, oh, something's going to happen and this thing's going to uh, come true in my life. But no, our hope is in uh, a person, and that is Jesus Christ. And nothing at all can stop him from giving life because Jesus does not just have life. He is life. He is the one. Now, of course, we understand this to be uh, in a spiritual sense. He is the one that can bring life to uh, the spiritually dead person. He is the one that can uh, uh, free us from uh, being dead in our trespasses and our sins. But the point here that he's trying to get across is that, listen, you don't need to worry. You don't need to wonder because I am life. I am the resurrection and the life. And this is one of the greatest ways that Jesus is different from us because we can lose our lives. We can die here on this earth, but yet Jesus, not only can he not lose his life, but he willingly gave his life for us. And then he rose it, took it back up again in the resurrection. And Jesus here took a doctrine, took a teaching and he reminded us that that doctrine is in the form of a person, not just in a book. One commentator said it this way, Warren Wearsby. He's got, he says a lot of great things. But he said this. He said, when you're sick, you want a doctor and not a medical book or a formula. He says, when you're sick, that's what you want. He says, when you're being sued, 
You want a lawyer. <laughs> you don't want a law book. He says, likewise, when you face your last enemy death, you want the Savior. You want an individual. You want someone that you're putting your faith and trust in. And Martha here was looking to the future. Others maybe were looking to the past. But Jesus was saying, I am the resurrection. I am the life right now. See, Jesus still is the resurrection and the life today. Did you know that? Just like he said to her at the end, he says, do you believe this? God says the same thing to us today. Do you believe? Do you trust that Jesus is your Savior? Have you made that decision personally? Have you decided in your heart that he is the one that you are trusting in for not only this life, but the life to come as well? Well, Martha responded in a powerful way, verse 27. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. You see that? Man, that's a great statement of faith. That's what's necessary to know Jesus as your Savior, to believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is God himself come in the flesh, and he came to this world for a purpose, to die on the cross for our sins, and he rose again the third day, proving, in fact, that he was God himself. And that's what we see here. She proclaims him to the world and she gives him this declaration of faith. And I love this because she affirms his deity. She affirms his Godhead. She uh, declares all of these wonderful things about Jesus. And then Martha goes to Mary and tells her. And I want you to see in verse 32, then when Mary was come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast bid here, my brother had not died. Notice it's like almost identical word for word. They must've been talking about it. Which tells me that when Martha went and said, hey, by the way, Jesus is here, that she didn't tell her what he had already said to her. I think that's kind of funny. That's kind of a sisterly thing to do, right? You know, like, oh yeah, Jesus is here. You know, act all sad, you know, <laughs> Jesus is here. He's here. And so she comes, Mary comes, and she says the exact same thing to him. And this is in verse 33, though, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which were with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have ye laid him? So where is Lazarus? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, as a kid, that's the verse you always want to memorize, right? <laughs> Bible verse memory time, John eleven thirty-five. 35, I'm ready to go, you know? <laughs> Jesus wept. All right, five points for Paul. <laughs> that's the one. But listen, this verse, though it's short, carries so much power to it, doesn't it? Carries so much power to it. I mean, the Jews, they saw this in verse 36, and they said, behold how he loved him. So what's happening here is Jesus is revealing his great love. What we're seeing here is a perfect mix of God's humanity and his deity being shown to us in this incredible moment. He was doing what Paul would later say in Romans 12, to weep with those who weep. Remember that? He is, he is loving these, these people. He is loving this family enough to enter into their suffering with them. God the Father, the one who knows, Jesus, the one who knows what is to come. He knows what he's about to do. But yet we see him not saying like, hey, everybody, just chill out. It's going to be all right. Jesus is here, right? He walks in the room. It's all good. <laughs> no, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He, he, he connects with them in their suffering. Amen. Connects right to them in their suffering. He weeps with them. Now, Jesus was actually able to do something to take the suffering away, wasn't he? but he still decides to join them in their pain. This is an important truth for us because so often in our own uncertainty and our own insecurities, uh, we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do when somebody else is suffering, do we? Uh, I'm, you know, as a pastor, I get to be around, and I say get to be, it is a, it's an honor to be around people in difficult circumstances. I get to hear some of the most challenging situations and be around people as they're going through loss and unexpected news. And I'll tell you what, I'd be honest with you, don't tell anybody this, but often I don't know what to say. And they say, Pastor, can you come and talk with me? Can you come and 
you know, uh, can you do this, talk to a family or whatever. And, and I often, I, I don't know what to say myself. And the problem is, is that when that happens in our hearts, what do we do? We shy away from it because we're uncomfortable. We kind of push back. We, we try to smooth over the brokenness, you know, like we'll just joke, we'll just go there and tell jokes for 15 minutes and then we'll leave. <laughs> Maybe everything will be okay. And it's because we're, we're insecure and that's, that's okay. We don't really know what to say. But what we see Jesus here is giving us a great example of he doesn't just come in and try to smooth things out. He just comes in and he expresses his heart of love by just showing compassion to them. This doesn't mean that every time somebody's suffering, you got to start weeping with them, okay? Just so you know. It's not about the act of weeping, but it's the point of that Jesus just being there with them, walking with them through this pain. And this is something that I, I've been praying, and I hope that you would pray for God to do in your own life personally, that God would develop in you a heart of compassion for other people, a heart that is sensitive to the suffering of others so that we can minister to them. Now, now again, this is the, the struggle that we have is that oftentimes we have such hard hearts to things because maybe you've been through something hard. You've been through something difficult. You've been through some suffering. And maybe you've, through the years, have just developed a bit of a hard heart, a, a thick skin. And so because you're like, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you kind of resist those things. And so when you look at somebody else who's suffering and going through difficulty, maybe in your mind, you might even say, why don't they just get over it? Why don't they just deal with it? You know, it's, not, like, it's nothing like what I went through. And that shows just a real lack of compassion and empathy and connection with people. So I'll tell you what, when you're going through your suffering, there's not a whole lot of people that can connect exactly to what you're going through. And yet Jesus comes alongside this family here and he ministers to them. He lifts them up. Of course, today we can lift up people in prayer. We can come alongside of them. We can tell them, I'm praying for you. We can just, sometimes the best thing you do is just go and sit with them. Uh, I, I know uh, one pastor told me, he said, in a time of, I was, I was doing a funeral, and I was like, I don't know what to do or say, you know, and it was a funeral. I didn't know the person. He said, he said I'll tell you what, he said, nobody there is going to remember what you say today. He said, but they'll all remember that you were there. And sometimes that's all it is. Just being there, being available to people. If you know someone in the church, someone in your family is going through a difficult time, just be available to them. Say, hey, I know you're going through a hard time. I know that you're struggling and I'm here for you and I'm praying for you. And that, sometimes that's all that's necessary. But the point is, is that we as Christians should be like Christ in this area and come alongside of those that are suffering, even if you don't have all the answers. I know immediately you're like, well, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> you know, Yes, I get it. I'm not either. None of us are. But you can come alongside and follow his example. And so he enters into their grief but now he moves to end their grief. And this is where we come to our final thought today, number four, where we see the power. We got the plan, we got the pain, we got the promise, and now we got the power. And yes, that is an alliteration. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> I'll start with P because my name starts with P, and so that's how I work from there. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Amen. That's scriptural right there. You guys are funny. All right, look at verse number 38. Verse number 38. All right. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay on it, lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinks, <laughs> for he has been dead four days. And Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? She thought about it for a moment. All right, take away the stone. Let's see what's going to happen here. Verse, uh, verse number 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I, heard, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by me, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Let's just go ahead and do verse uh, 43 and 44. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Man, this is amazing. I love this story. So Jesus comes to the tomb and, you know, it says that it was a cave and often that's how it was. There'd be a cave and they'd carve notches into the cave and they'd bury maybe seven or eight bodies, depending on the side of it, would all be in there, maybe a family graveyard. And Jesus says, I want you to open up the grave there. And Martha comes along and says, Lord, he stinks. He's been in there for a while. The uh, decomposition is already starting to happen. And uh, I don't know that we all want to go in there, nor do we want to be around there in this part of time. I don't want to see my brother like that. I want to remember him as he was alive and healthy. And I don't want to see it. And Jesus says, listen, I told you, right? I told you that it was going to be all right. Let's see the glory of God together, he says. And so they open it up, and then Jesus prays. And notice what he says in his prayer there. He doesn't, he says to the Lord, he says, I'm not doing this for myself, but I'm doing it for those that are here today. I'm, I'm doing this so that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so as that tomb opens up, and I'm sure as people uh, maybe started to kind of try to see inside, you know, some of you are like that, right? You know, whenever you go to a, a, a burial site, you're always like looking down inside, you know? I, I know, I know who you are. You're trying to see inside and Okay, maybe, that, maybe that's just me. All right, and so, you, uh, and so you, they open it up, right? And people are trying to look inside, and then I'm sure somebody screamed, don't you think? Woo! Because <laughs> Jesus, he called out. He said, Lazarus, come forth, right? Somebody said that the reason he had to say his name is because if he just said, come forth, then all the graves in the world would have opened up at that moment, and we would have had a zombie apocalypse on our hands. No. He says, Lazarus, come forth, and I'm sure somebody was trying to see inside, and, and somebody somebody's moving in there, you know? And you see the shadow and here comes Lazarus and it says that he had all the grave clothes on. He had even it uh, over his face and stuff and he kind of like, no, I'm, I'm joking. He came out, he was not a zombie or, okay, get that out of your head. All right, but he comes out. This is the, the thought process when you have four boys, all right? He comes out and Jesus says, loose him and let him go. It's kind of anticlimactic, don't you think? A little bit at the end here. Jesus says, Lazarus is and he came out. All right, take off the grave clothes. All right, the end. <laughs> That's kind of the end of it. But it's not anticlimactic because of what is implemented here, what we see as Jesus reveals his power over physical death. And I'll tell you this, church, if Jesus has power over the physical death that we fear so much, he most certainly has power over our spiritual, eternal life, doesn't he? If he can give Lazarus life again on this earth, which by the way, Lazarus died again. He did die again. But that, when that death came, he knew and he had eternal life from that point on. See, the sickness here of Lazarus did not end in complete death, but it ended in resurrection. And to me, there's so much hope in this passage here because even though death had spoken into his life, it was not final because of who he knew, because he knew Jesus Christ. And for us today, our death on this earth is not final for us. It is not the end because of who we know, Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life, and we can trust him. And church, this is what we got to get today. We got to understand the power of God, the power of God. Sometimes we read these stories and we're just like, oh man, that's so cool. Jesus did this. But listen, this means so much for us. It means so much for us as Christians today that Jesus has this kind of power. He is the resurrection and the life. And I'll tell you what, if you understand that and you recognize that in your life and you sort of lock it into your heart, here's what it does. It changes the way you live today for him. Knowing that he has the power 
to work in your circumstances. Knowing that he has the power to receive glory through your difficulty changes the way that we live. We no longer live uh, in, a, in, in, in a constant state of like, why isn't God doing what I want him to do? Why isn't God uh, doing as I think he, I have it all figured out if he would just do what I tell him to do, if he would just do exactly what I think he should do. Instead of living our life in that way and in discouragement and struggling like that, we can just say, you know what, God, you're in control. You have the power to raise Lazarus. You have the power to give me eternal life. And God, you have the power to work in the situation that I am in right now, what I'm struggling with right now. That's the big lesson here. That's the big uh, part of this story that I want us to get today. And so I want to ask you, do you have a plan right now? <laughs> do you have a plan? Is there something that you're like, okay, this is, this is how things need to be. This is what's going to happen. And God hasn't quite worked it out. Can I encourage you to give that plan to God today? Say, God, I'm just going to give you my plans. You know, as we sang earlier on in that song, Waymaker, I love that part of the song that says, even when I don't see it or feel it, you're working. Now, if you'd look to the back, I was doing a little fist pump during that part of the song because I love that part of the song. <laughs> Man, I love it because it's so true. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, God is working. And what is he working for? He is working for his glory and for our good. Always, always. Even in your most difficult and most challenging of times, he is working and we can trust him. And we can trust him today. That's what it comes down to. Do you trust God? Can you stand like Martha and say, you know what, God, you didn't do what I thought you should do. If you'd been here, things would have turned out differently. But you know what? I'm still trusting the fact that you are God and you can do what you want to do. And I, I'm just going to believe it. And I'm going to trust you. So what is it right now in your life that you're dealing with? What is it right now that you're having a hard time giving to the Lord? You're having a hard time. You're like, God, you got to fit inside of what I want here. You got to fit inside my box. <laughs> you got to do what I think you should do. And you're, you're fighting. And that's why I went like that. You're struggling. It's a struggle for you. It's hard. Would you release that and would you give that to God today? He'll come alongside you in the difficulty. Isaiah 55, 8, I think is a great verse to finish with. And you probably could quote this from memory where he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. Who said it? The Lord. <laughs> Saith the Lord. He says, I am not thinking like you're thinking. I am not doing how you think I should, <laughs> things I should do but yet he still is working. And so from this I am statement of Christ, what can we get from it? We can get and we can understand that we can move forward in confidence that God is working things out for his glory and that his glory and his love, there's no, there's no conflict there. They work together. They work together. He said to Mary and he said to the disciples, he says, because of my love for the family, I'm gonna let this thing happen. We're gonna walk through this situation together. And ultimately he did receive the glory. So I wonder in your life, what are you shaping by your emotions rather than letting the truth of God shape you? What, uh, what elements of your life right now are you living for your own glory, not the glory of God, and you're trying to somehow fix this, the challenges that you're in right now? Maybe there's some of you, you need to accept Christ's gift of life. He, he, he said here, he could raise Lazarus from the dead, like I said, and he can certainly give us eternal life. And maybe you haven't trusted him. Maybe you haven't, like Martha said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. I believe that you are the one who came to this world to die for me. Maybe you need to make that decision today. I would encourage you to trust Christ. Trust Christ. Well, we do want to thank you so much for tuning into the message today. And if it's been a help and encouragement to you in any way, uh, we would ask that you share the podcast. 
And you can easily do that on either social media or maybe just uh, text the link to a friend. But like I said, it's our mission to help others find and follow Jesus here in Vancouver, uh, all across Canada and even around the world. And so you sharing the message today can really contribute towards that. Also, we would love for you to make a connection with us if you haven't already. And so the two best ways to do that is either by liking our Facebook page, that's City Baptist Church, or following our Instagram account, Advanced City Baptist. And of course, you can check out our website at citybaptist.ca. We do have all of our past sermon series on there available for you to stream, uh, past services, uh, worship, and just lots of other content and resources there to encourage you and strengthen you in your walk with God. But once again, thank you so much for tuning in today. We are looking forward to next week's message from our new series, I Am. We love you, we're praying for you, and we're here for you.